Yarra Libraries acknowledges the Wurundjeri as the traditional owners of the land this podcast was recorded on, pays tribute to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in Yarra, and gives respect to Elders past, present and emerging. Listening to a Yarra Libraries podcast, where we bring you discussions related to the books, films, music, and ideas that make up our library collection. Today, we're pleased to present Sam George Allen and her book Witches What Women Do Together. Sam George Allen was in conversation with Ellen Cregan, Kilia Darling's first book club coordinator, at Bukungunungan North Fitzroy Library. Together, they presented a Yarra Libraries edition of the Kilia Darling's first book club a series of discussions and events featuring debut authors and their books. This is an edited recording, with the swears removed. So my name's Ellen and I'm the uh, Killy Darling's first book club coordinator. Killy Darling's is an online magazine and we publish criticism, cultural commentary, some fiction, heaps and heaps of stuff. We also offer things like writing workshops, um, some prizes, manuscript assessments and other writerly programs. And we also run a podcast that features interviews and discussions of bookish things, which we are actually recording tonight. Um, And what the first book club is, is it features a debut book every month, either fiction or nonfiction, and sort of brings together things like reviews, excerpts, interviews on the website, and then podcasts and events just like the one we're having tonight. So this evening, we're going to be discussing our first book club pick for March, which is Witches, 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 What Women Do Together by Sam George Allen, who's sitting next to me. Welcome, Sam. Thanks for coming. Thank you so much for having me, Ellen. Um, So Sam and I are going to talk for 30-ish minutes and then there will be time for everyone to ask questions. So I will give you all a heads up when the time comes for the questions so you can sort of prep them and have them in your mind. There's always an awkward silence (laughs) when you say you're going to ask questions, so I I don't want that. Um, Be ready. And now we're going to begin with a reading from the book from Sam um, for those people who haven't yet had a chance to read it. Okay, so I'm reading from uh, from the introduction of the book, which hopefully give you uh, an introduction to the book. Being let into the boys' club is such a monumentally disappointing prize. Reminiscing with a friend recently, we were appalled to realise how much of our teen years were spent sitting silently in male friends' houses, watching them play video games. They didn't even offer us the controller. This was what we were rewarded with for being the cool girl. What a crock of... Witches, though, have never sought entry into that club. Go back to the Middle Ages, go further to ancient Greece and Rome, further to the magical traditions of Africa and the Americas, and you will find women doing work, healing work, birthing work, spirit work, in their own damn club. Witches have been many things throughout human history, and by no means have they always been women. But now, after centuries of Judeo-Christian culture and colonialism, the term witch has come to describe a woman on the margins. During the European witch craze of the Middle Ages, a witch was any woman who challenged or alarmed the church or the community, whether by knowing how to heal people with herbs rather than leeches and prayer, or by being poor, old, disfigured, or otherwise different. If a witch is a woman on the margins, then we're all witches, because in a patriarchy, all women are marginalized in one way or another. The word is still deployed as a threat, reminding us that we're all a step or two away from the stake and the flames. 
It was only in 2016 that Peter Dutton, then Immigration Minister for the Coalition Government, called journalist Samantha Maiden a mad f***ing witch. And just a few years earlier that Tony Abbott was staging press conferences about Julia Gillard in front of signs that read, Ditch the Witch. The term might seem at home lumped alongside other choice words reserved for putting women in their place, but there's something different about witch. Maybe it's the undisguisable element of power about it. Maybe that's why now many women, young and old, are choosing to claim the title for themselves. I went back to witchcraft, spurred by that all-consuming envy that saw me pulling cards from my Rider-Waite-Smith deck, and the unnerving, overwhelming feeling that I was being acted upon by forces beyond my control. I could not get a hold of myself. It felt like magic, so I looked to magical traditions, seeking, half-jokingly, a way of making sense of it all. What I found was a tradition of women helping women. I had my revelation here. If all women are witches because they're on the margins, then groups of women, collaborators, covens, are the witchiest of all. Women in groups make the margins their home, draw their strength from being able to see clearly from the edge, and together they are deeply and earth-movingly subversive. Yes, even the Country Women's Association, even the Girl Scouts, even the Concerned Women for America. Because, let's be real, how frightening is the thought of women in concert with one another? How intimidating for those who need the patriarchy for success to imagine a league of women for whom male approval is the last thing on their minds? How easy is it to understand the Athenians' mortal horror in the face of reports that the Amazons, the warrior women of classical history, might be mobilizing to move on Greece? The assumption that women always inhabit objecthood, unable to exercise the subjectivity necessary to even want to work together, is turned on its head. This is the legacy of consciousness raising, that second wave movement of feminism among the isolated women of the first world, the movement Rebecca Solnit says broke through the shame that had kept them silent and alone. Here is where Audre Lorde found the concern and caring of all those women, which gave me strength and enabled me to scrutinize the essentials of my living. And here the witch emerges, unnerving enough on her own, but when she's part of a coven converting good women, those who serve their families, those spread out and visible, to disciples, increasing the numbers of an unholy alliance of female agency, she becomes outright terrifying. Of course there is a conspiracy to keep women apart from one another. As much as my issues with competitiveness are products of my own unique neuroses, many of the women I spoke to for this book when I told them what I was writing about had a gleam of recognition in their eyes. When I talked to Sue Middleton, former Rural Woman of the Year and phenomenally successful farmer, she brought up the fact that a lot of women her age who occupied positions of power at their top in the industries were reluctant to let other women join them at the top. It's a recognized phenomenon when the women who fought hard against the current of sexism and marginalization to get to their position then kick the door shut behind them. Jessa Crispin talks about it in her book, Why I Am Not a Feminist, pointing out that the door slamming often happens along lines of privilege. White women in particular have opened doors for other white women but refuse to do the same for non-white women or for trans or non-binary people. I spoke to Melbourne artist DJ Sezo about why we felt a sense of competition only with other women and not with men. She came at it from an economic perspective. The idea persists in lots of industries, both creative and otherwise, that most roles are for men. 
and that the roles available to women are scarce at best, so we feel a sense of false economy and its accompanying anxiety. Believing that there are only one or two positions available to us means that we compete with members of our own gender much more than we compete with others outside that group, and it means that we absorb the ideas that women, or other women, are incompetent, unworthy of admiration or aspiration, objects of suspicion. I think she's right. Slamming the door shut behind you, competing for artificially scarce opportunities, they're both symptoms of a system that's rigged to keep us distracted from the real problem. The fact that there is a door to slam in the first place. The outrageous lie that there are only ever a few spaces available for women at the top of their game. This was the root of the all-consuming envy I felt, and it's what I needed to tear out. Fortunately, the women I've spoken to in the course of writing this book are the best possible proof that there is infinite room for wise, brilliant, talented women in every industry. Ballet dancers, weightlifters, farmers, nuns, they are all doing the work in their own ways and their own spaces of tearing down the paper scenery and opening up the real world. I had hoped that this book would help with that work. For the first time in my life, I've intentionally put myself in positions where I can learn from other women only other women. I've spent so much time listening to people's stories, letting their knowledge and experiences change me. I wanted to make something that would change other people too. But the change I had hoped to make is already here. When I look around, I no longer see those narratives of feminine competition. I've spent enough time talking with the people featured in this book to know for sure that the natural state of women together is not rivalry. This book is a memoir of learning and unlearning as well as a celebration of women in collaboration with one another. Everywhere, women are doing things together, wonderful things, magical things, in spite of all the bullshit we're told about women being catty, backstabbing, untrustworthy bitches. I'm not trying to suggest that all women are kind to each other or supportive of one another or any one thing at all. We all know that our lives and stories are as diverse as we are, and I know I can't be representative of all experiences, but what I am trying to show is an alternative, many alternatives, to the stories we are usually told. This book is a letter to my former self and to anyone who's ever felt like her. Look at all these women, I want to say. Look what happens when we come together. Magic, some people say, is change driven by intent. Of course we are witches. Thank you so much. You should all definitely read the book, but that kind of gives such a brilliant summary of what the whole book is. Like, it's just, it's a very good introduction, I think. The perfect Thank section you. to read. <laughs> I also love the way that you open with that anecdote of pulling tarot cards, because one of the um, greatest things I did as a teenager was use tarot cards to scare boys <laughs> who didn't understand it, didn't want to understand yeah. it, but wanted to feel scared. Yeah, and yeah. that was a kind of, like, not a real power, but in uh, a way it was. Yeah, sure. So there are so many interesting ideas you go into in the book, which we kind of get from that little introduction there, and they're extremely wide-ranging. How did you decide which kinds of women you wanted to write about in the book? Sure, yeah, that's a, that's a good question because I kind of don't remember. <laughs> but most of them, most of the groups of women I chose to research and talk to, I had some kind of a personal connection to. It's why, for example, there's a chapter on farmers because my mum is a farmer, a late-in-life farmer. 
Yeah, so I I had been in bands, which is why I wrote on girl bands. I had been a teenage girl, which is why I wrote about teen girls. And then there were the groups that I was very interested in just because I didn't know anything about them. And I had preconceptions that I think I wanted to address, which is like nuns, uh, dancers. I've never been a dancer. It has always seemed like this completely esoteric, inscrutable art form. Yeah, so I guess... It was personal connection in either a, a like a standard issue form, like I, I had a, a personal relationship with them already, or it was connection in that I was had an intense curiosity that I wanted to to um, slake. Something I kind of took from the book, which is maybe just me, was that all of these groups of women and girls are kind of, I guess, misunderstood or very underrated. So. Dancers, for example, dance is one of, and you go into this in the book, it's one of the oldest art forms. Mm. It literally is the, the sort of the oldest that we have evidence for. And um, dance is seen as this kind of really insubstantial thing that isn't high art unless it's been choreographed by a man. Yeah, yeah. I mean, dance is, is such an obvious example of diminishing an art form because it's coded feminine, right? Mm. Dan- dance is definitely coded feminine. We think of dance, we think of pink tutus and ballet slippers and and um, oh, all the millions of ballerina-themed children's shows that are just for girls. And that means that we take it less seriously, like you said, unless, exactly, unless it's choreographed by mm. a man, which is the case for almost all ballet. But I found it so interesting to get into the world of dance because that kind of encultured ignorance means that women can kind of do what they want with the art form without scrutiny. And I thought that was a really fascinating aspect of it, which is sort of repeated throughout the book in in those groups of women. Oh, definitely. And I think dancers as well, it's like you were saying, it's the pink, the soft, the fluffy materials. But actually... Dancers are like the strongest people. They're incredibly muscular. Their yeah. feet are messed up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> people say boxers and ballet dancers are the fittest athletes. Yeah, completely. Yeah. And pe- that's not the kind of surface image that comes to mind when you think ballet. No, no. But it's what I loved about learning about ballet, especially as someone who is just, you know, a, a, not a casual ballet lover. <laughs> that's weird. But, <laughs> but I love it. I've been to the ballet a few times. Always think it's incredible, you know, because you're seeing people do this amazing, these amazing things with their bodies. Mm. But learning about it and learning exactly what that entails, it's like the, it's this opportunity for the women who choose that as a career to be incredibly physically disciplined and to spend their whole lives devoted to a physical art form and and not be censured for it, which mm. which is the, often the case with female athletes, for example. Oh, definitely. Um, recently with the oh, AFLW. Yeah, yeah. Terrible, terrible. Mm. Um, so this book is definitely one that contains a lot of elements of cultural studies and cultural criticism, but your particular voice is really strong throughout and often it's quite conversational. I felt reading this book that I was being spoken to about feminism and ways of being about someone who was like a friend or like a somebody who's sort of next to you do you think that the book gains from that kind of voice that you've kept throughout uh I mean I hope so I'm not an experienced enough writer to stop myself doing that it's just the way that I write Uh, hopefully in the future I will be able to access different styles (laughs) and maybe write with a more authoritative tone or something but I mean also you know the whole time I was writing the book I was having conversations about the, the subject matter with my close girlfriends, with my community of, of women around me. And I think that informed the way that I wrote it for sure. Um, so hopefully 
that is a good thing. I hope people like that. I really liked it. Okay, great. Do you think it was also because the structure of the book is, as we were saying, it goes through all these different kinds of women and these groups of women, Mm. but you go in and you interview people and you get quite close to them. Mm. Did that have a hand in that kind of approach that you were you were having conversations not just with the people in your life but with Mm. the actual people who you wanted to put in the book yeah I mean I guess I felt I felt that I had a responsibility to accurately portray the people who I interviewed um and accurately you know transcribe not just what they said but how they felt about their industry or their vocation or or whatever we were talking about and so I guess I wanted to as accurately as possible depict the kinds of conversations that we had and and the stuff that we got into. So there are a couple of sections in the book that you actually co-wrote which Mm. is a really interesting thing and I think a fantastic thing that you've done. So the um, chapter on trans women and the chapter on indigenous women you worked with a partner throughout those chapters someone who had lived experience of that kind of womanhood. Mm. Why did you want to do this? I didn't feel like I could write those chapters on my own. Yeah, it's they were the chapters that were identity-based um, rather than vocational occupation-based. Mm. And I yeah, just didn't feel that I had anywhere near the authority required to, to write about that with any in- sense of integrity. And I was lucky enough to know someone who I wanted to co-author the chapter on trans women with Mm. whose work I really admired and who I consider a friend and wanted to collaborate with and then Auntie Dawn who's a Brisbane Indigenous elder is we have a friend family connection Um, she's the great aunt of some of my really good friends in Brisbane and that just worked out really well yeah and they're very they're very different people and as such they're very different chapters so I was wondering what it was like to sort of put these chapters together with two people who have very different lived experiences Mm. and also when you read the book you'll see that they have very different ways of telling their stories as well. Well I mean Liz Liz Duck Chong is who I co-authored the chapter on trans women with and she is a writer and we had uh, not collaborated but we have often shared our work and you know given each other critique and feedback Um, so we already had that kind of a working relationship so when I approached her and said, would you like to co-author this chapter? It was very collaborative right from the start. I said, what do you think we should write it about? I'm kind of thinking about this. What do you reckon? And then we did the uh, classic shared Google Doc oh, system nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, where we would, you know, kind of wrote paragraphs and, and then um, we would edit each other's work as well. It was uh, such a rewarding process just as a writer to work mm. with someone whose work you really admire and get get that really valuable feedback um, so that was a fairly straight down the line co-authoring collaboration Auntie Dawn is um, a born storyteller and mm. that's what she does she's amazing after I finished that chapter I went onto YouTube yeah. and I looked up she does these singing things yeah. it's like a yarn time yeah. yeah yeah and she's got an acoustic guitar and she's just she's so magnetic yeah she's an incredible performer she's a musician and a storyteller and an activist and she does a lot of welcome to country um style events uh and is deeply involved in in indigenous culture in brisbane but she's not a writer she's an oral storyteller Mm. so the way we did that was i again i approached her i said would you like to co-author this chapter i feel like the probably the best way to do it would be if we just hung out a bunch Mm. and i pressed record on my phone and then we went from there (laughs) and that's what we did we just hung out and I would ask her a couple of questions and then she would tell me story after story and I got to 
record them. And then I transcribed them and sent them to her and said, how do you feel about this? I've edited some bits together to, you know, make it make sense on the page. And she was like, yeah, it's great. That chapter is mostly Auntie Dawn, Mm. really. Um, And it's interspersed with kind of contextualizing bits that describe parts of her life that um, either she didn't describe or that I felt the reader might need to understand Mm. certain parts of her story. That was an incredibly rewarding experience as well. And I talk about it a bit in that chapter. You know, I lived in Brisbane for 10 years. I lived in West End, which is where Auntie Dawn is connected to for five years. And she provided this connection to a part of that community that I'd never really accessed. Um, And yeah, I made a friend in her. We still stay in touch. And she's just, like you said, she's magnetic. She's this Mm. incredible, like, focal point in the whole community. She's worth looking up on YouTube, everybody. Yeah, she's uh, <laughs> um, so one of the things that this book does very effectively is to dismantle the idea that women have this inane desire to tear each other down. <laughs> so what was it that made you really want to take down this trope? Uh, look, I have always had issues with competitiveness, mm. um, which is just an inbuilt thing for me. It's just an issue that I need to take <laughs> up with my therapist. But I sort of started thinking about it uh, more critically in the last couple of years when I had these very strong reactions um, to other women in my field being successful and I would feel this weird kind of clenching fury and envy and I was like, that doesn't feel right, doesn't feel natural and I started to approach it from a theoretical perspective, particularly informed by The Beauty Myth, which is an old book now, it's 30 years old, but it's still... Uh, is so important in terms of like pointing out the kind of cultural apparatuses that really keep women distracted from what's really important Mm. and you know Naomi Wolf is talking about performing beauty and like a mandatory beauty standard Um, and I really felt that that mapped onto a mandatory intrasexual rivalry if you are always competing with other women then you you cannot combine your resources to agitate for social change or recognition or a pay rise or anything that you need group activity to do. Yeah, so as soon as I had that realisation, I was like, well, that's bullshit and I need to do something. <laughs> well, yeah, it was it was all I could think about, so I, I needed to write about it, yeah. I think we all know that it's bullshit, but it's so nice to have it articulated in that specific way <laughs> because, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that you just, your whole life, you're like, this, like, it doesn't feel right. It doesn't mm. feel right at all. So what do you think are some practical things and with the book in mind that we should be doing to boost other women up particularly with the view to intersectionality so i'm a white woman uh, a white cis woman who's from a middle class family pretty much privileged on every axis except gender Uh, i think for women like me the best thing we can do is when it comes to certain subjects shut up Mm. Shut up and amplify the voices of other people who are experts on on those particular topics. So topics of race and queerness. I'm a straight woman as well. Um, and, yeah, there's – I almost feel like I'm not qualified to talk about yeah, it. Yeah, but, you know, post um, the terrorist attack in Christchurch, you've seen a lot of people talking about kind of performatively lamenting the state of media in Australia mm. and – it's the perfect time to not talk about that or to amplify the voices of the women of colour or the Muslim women who have been saying that kind of stuff for a really long time. Basically, I think the best thing you can do in order to boost other women up is to 
spend time in self-reflection because it's very easy to demonstrate support without actually doing that support. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, because you see that quite often people taking opportunities that could have actually been given to someone else who's more qualified, who has that lived experience and who doesn't yeah. have that privilege. And-, and and I don't necessarily think there's malice in that. No, I think it's people all. going, cool, I've got an opportunity, I'm going to take it. Which, you know, we get taught you need a hustle, you need to get your mm. job, particularly if you're in a creative industry, absolutely. But if you take the few minutes required to reflect on how your privilege you know but like we should all be thinking about our privilege we should it's just become a hackneyed phrase yeah (laughs) totally but if you think about how your special set of um you know boosters have impacted your access to that particular thing Mm. and if you think about the people in your circle who could talk about this from um, a much more authoritative perspective then i think that actually does the work of of lifting up the people who who ought to be lifted up, who, mm. you know, it's just, and it makes for better better content, better culture as totally. well. It sort of dehomogenizes it, which yeah. is another thing in the media. It's quite, yeah. um, it's so white. <laughs> so I think my favorite chapter in this book, just to sort of turn around, was definitely the one where you go into the work of women farmers who I really <laughs> hadn't thought about before, and I loved it so much. The women you interview are so resilient and yeah. also innovative. Mm. And have really fought to do this work that they love, like have had to fight families even. Yeah. So what do you think it is about these women farmers that makes them like that and also makes them able and willing to drive a lot of change in the agricultural industry? Uh, A big part of it, I think, is that women in agriculture are already super marginalized they're already made to feel like outsiders uh regularly not every agricultural industry some are much more gender equal than others but like i said i got interested in in writing about farmers because my mom is a farmer she farms vanilla which is the bougiest crop but it's just She's still, gotta do it. <laughs> she's still a farmer um, and she is in far north Queensland where the main crops are cane and bananas and they are both very, very male um, to the point where something I recount in the book, um, one of my mum's friends who is a queer woman and the only child of her parents who are you know, generations old cane farmers. This friend is so interested in cane farming, loves it and her dad will not leave her the farm because she's a woman and because she's a gay woman she's not going to marry a man so it's completely off the table like it that is shocking right i see jaws mm. dropping it's shocking but it's that that is the state of certain agricultural industries in australia now in 2019 so that means that women are necessarily already operating outside of the mainstream right you're already having to fight to be taken seriously so many of them are going, well, why not at the same time look into, you know, regenerative agricultural practices, mm. other stuff that that's going to make people go, well, what the hell is that? Because they're already going, what the hell is that of you because you're a girl? You know, <laughs> you already have access to this, this othered realm. You have this freedom to do what you want because the level of scrutiny is not really going to change. No. I, I really think that has, has something to do with it. There's also the fact, and this is something that Rachel Treasure, a Tasmanian farmer, brought up when I spoke to her, 
There's also the fact that women on farms, on the land, are still disproportionately responsible for childcare mm. and raising their families. And so they have a really close view of how food affects their children. And so they are much more personally invested in where that food comes from, in how good that food is, mm. and in the security of that food in the long run. So that means that there's just more women who are more invested in agricultural practices that are genuinely going to be sustainable because they want to be able to keep feeding their children into the future. It's really easy to, you know, do gender essentialist stuff and say, oh, it's because women are natural, you know, earth mother, yada, yada, nurturing. <laughs> but the practicality is if you see how your children change depending on the food that they're eating and how that food is grown, then of course you're going to make changes based on that. Yeah. Yeah, it's directly in front of you. Yeah. And you hear that so often of um, women on farms having that the childcare mm the admin responsibilities and then also somehow farm work like yeah. it doesn't oh, really add up it's so wild <laughs> it's so wild women on farms do so much yeah. I, I loved that chapter yeah. i thought it was wonderful okay. and i didn't i didn't realize that i would i like i knew i was gonna be interested in it but it, i didn't know it would be the one that sort of stuck with me so much what are some lessons that you learned from writing this book that sort of surprised you because you do a lot of interesting things you go to dance classes uh you go you do some weightlifting i think <laughs> um yeah, the weightlifting is really interesting. Mm. I didn't expect to take away what I did from that. So in the chapter about sports women, I talked to uh, female weightlifters um, who do Olympic weightlifting, Olympic style weightlifting. And without any prompting, they spoke to me about how weightlifting had changed their relationship to their bodies. And I was waiting for them to be like, mm, I know, I, or to, to talk about, you know, being bulky. Mm. And they didn't. They were like, I don't care what my body looks like anymore. I only care about what my body can do. And I was like, wow, wild. <laughs> Imagine that. <laughs> Basically. And all of these women have come to weightlifting from other sports. So uh, Tessa, who was my main contact, she'd come from running and other track track and field events and other women had come from gymnastics or ballet one of the girls had come from ballet and they all said you know prior to doing this they were really focused on what they looked like um even though they were still athletes mm. but it was weightlifting and the numbers and the also the culture they said it was so supportive and everyone looked completely different you know very different body shapes different heights all, all kinds of stuff and they said that it completely cured them of this obsession that many of us have with with how how their body looked and instead made them focus on what it could do mm. and that's just something that i have tried to keep in the back of my mind as much as possible even though i'm very far from an athlete but i do <laughs> if it's, it's nice to be reminded of it's like well you know you you can carry around so much loathing for your body but it's the thing that carries you around you know mm. and keeps you alive and gets you from point a to point b and and i love my car so i should love my body mm. too <laughs> i think that's a thing that's changing a lot in women's fitness inverted mm. commas yeah. is that there's not so much like get that beach body it's it seems to be a lot more about strength now and there's still really damaging imagery and ideas that can come from that but it seems to be this sort of tilt that it's now a bit more about yeah what your body can do and mm. and how that can improve your life rather than what you look like yeah yeah I mean you do you do see the rhetoric changing mm. but yeah like you said you do see also see stuff like fit is the new skinny yeah which, which is makes me furious because it's unhealthy 
what they mean is skinny with muscles is the yeah, exactly. skinny. Like if your um, your brain doesn't sort of develop that idea in the way that they probably think it is. Exactly, yeah. But I do think that there is a, a lot of merit in the fact that we are, you know, with the kind of boom in fitness as a hobby mm. that's happened in the last 10 years, I think, yeah, you are seeing a lot more value placed on on the capabilities of your body rather than what it looks like. Yeah, for sure. Mm. Um, so I'm going to ask one more. We're not going to accept any awkward silences. So my last question for you is sort of a utopian one. What do you think a future of women working together could look like? Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> it's kind um, of a big one. It would involve free childcare. It would probably involve... Yeah, I mean, think about it. If if every woman in the world joined a women's union, oh. <laughs> like a global women's union, we would immediately have free childcare. We would have flexible hours for everyone, mm. right? I, I know this is like horrendously capitalism-based, but I can only <laughs> think about stuff in the workplace at the moment. Probably... Uh, the distribution of money would be different. I would like, I would love to see, you know, the the sort of stuff that we still consider to be women's work. So, mm-hmm. caring for children, uh, domestic duties, transporting people from place to place. Women are always the taxis, right? All that kind of stuff remunerated or at least valued, outwardly valued mm. in culture, and not just assumed as well. And not just assumed, yeah. yeah. And I mean, I've been thinking a lot about parenthood and child rearing recently and if you had a a global women's collaboration movement you'd see people sharing parenting duties outside of their immediate nuclear families Mm. a lot as well and I think that would be so valuable to so many working mothers like just being able to to and not feel guilty about you know sharing sharing the duties of looking after kids with one another Mm. I'm lucky enough to work in an office of all women in my day job mm. and a couple of weeks ago we had a deadline and um, somebody had had to have their child dropped off for a crossover pickup yeah. and um, she just had her toddler at the desk. She was typing, mm-hmm. working, the kid was there, nobody cared. People were like, can I hold her? Can yeah. I take her away from you? Yeah. Like, do you need help? And that, it wasn't a big deal. No, and it's something, not a big deal. It doesn't have to be a big deal. It doesn't have to be a big deal. Oh, just imagine. Yeah. Um, That's kind of a modest <laughs> utopia. That's what I'm shooting for. <laughs> well, you know, it's it's better to maybe we need to aim low to start with. Yeah, sure. Possibly. I'll allow it, yeah. So thank you so much, everyone, for coming. What a wonderful talk. Thanks to the library for having us tonight. And copies of Sam's book are available just here. And she is very happy to sign them. I did check with her. <laughs> so thank you so much, Sam. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thank you. That was Sam George Allen in conversation with Ellen Cregan for the Kill Your Darlings First Book Club. Kill Your Darlings is a site for cultural criticism, commentary, short fiction and memoir. You can find more great writing on their website and more of their First Book Club events on the Kill Your Darlings podcast. We run regular author talks and discussions at all branches of Yarra Libraries, so please keep an eye on our website. For you in May, we'd recommend our In Conversation with writer and broadcaster Rachel Brown whose podcast Trace investigated the death of Maria James. In June, you could come along to our next First Book Club event with Kill Your Darlings, where local author Elizabeth Cooper will speak about her debut novel, Little Stones. If you're keen to read Witches, please pop into your local branch or place a reservation online. In the meantime, Yarra Libraries promises to help you find out whatever you want to know about witches, farmers, beauty vloggers, ballet dancers, weightlifters, 
or nuns. Happy reading!